You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday for worship at 8.30 or 10.45. Find out more at asburybosier.org. Good morning. It's good to be with you as we start a new worship series. As we begin the season of Lent, over the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about uh, six different metaphors for understanding the cross, to understanding of what Jesus accomplished uh, on the cross. One of my favorite things about this video, and I can't remember if I set it to be online where our online uh, guests could see it, uh, but all the different artwork for each week. Sarah Duway, <coughs> who is uh, our media uh, staff person, uh, really did a fantastic job of looking at these different ways of understanding the cross and putting them into um, abstract, minimalist art. And we'll be talking about that on Wednesdays as well uh, as, as we look at this. And on Holy Week for Holy Thursday, uh, she's going to have physical pieces here in the sanctuary uh, as meditative tools uh, as we gather together on this journey to the cross. We begin today with a reading from 1 Peter, the second chapter, verses 20 through 24. It'll be on the screens, uh, it'll be online, and it's also in your Bible. Let us hear the word of the Lord. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body and on the cross, so that, free from sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Normally, one of the things I love about ministry is that it's unpredictable. There's no such thing as a normal week. Clergy everywhere on Monday morning, they have a blank sheet of paper. And depending on where you are and, and how your spiritual life is and, and, and kind of where you find yourselves, sometimes you see that blank sheet of paper as absolutely nothing. And in the best of times, you see that blank sheet of paper as everything. It can be anything. It's possibility itself. And normally, this is a very exciting prospect. At least it is for me. I tend to get bored very quickly. So every week, I get a blank sheet of paper to do some amazing things with all of you. But it has its limits. <laughs> this week, I've been following several of my clergy colleagues in Texas and hearing about how they are still in ministry with their communities, and yet they have no power, they have no water, frigid temperatures, and then they get a, a boil advisory when they have no water nor any power, which is tragically comical. One of my colleagues 
had a reflection about midweek this week after going over 36 hours with no power. He took his family to a a hotel that was near the house they walked. And within about five hours of getting to the hotel, the hotel lost power. His reflection stuck with me. He said, I'm now beginning to realize just how fragile the things we build are. The infrastructure we build is fragile. The politics we keep are fragile. Our healthcare system is so easily overwhelmed. There's racial hostility. Our relationships with one another are fragile. And he mentioned how he had put a lot of trust and a lot of faith in the things that we build rather than the people who have built them. The people who do the difficult work often behind the scenes to offer to us what we so often take for granted. Now, this pandemic has not caused these things so much as revealed them and unveiled them, just how fragile the systems we have built are, including our own economy. How quickly we put faith in things we build instead of the people behind them. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't need to build a new, more efficient power grid. This doesn't mean that we don't discuss politics or race relations with honesty, patience, and integrity. This doesn't mean that we don't have a very difficult and pointed discussion when the poor are literally freezing to death and the wealthy have an escort to the airport to wait it out in another place. It's not a political statement, it's a human one. But let me tell you what I have seen this week. I've seen neighbors sacrificing for neighbors. I have the great fortune of living in between two police officers, uh, which means I often don't turn on the alarm system. (laughs) It's an automatic deterrent when you have two cruisers right outside your driveway. Neighbor to my left, while he was on patrol, uh, he was giving our neighborhood uh, updates all through the night of the conditions of the road. And then when he was off duty, when he should have been resting, He was pulling people out of ditches, making store runs for people because he knew how to get there and he knew that he could. The neighbor to the right of me, uh, I was shoveling my driveway and he could tell that I was, I don't work out. I know you're surprised by that. So I was shoveling my driveway and I was was sucking a lot of wind about halfway through. Uh, And he came over and and he helped. Uh, He didn't have to do that. I eventually took a break and he kept going. Sometimes these things bring out the very best in us. And it's cliche, but sometimes it brings out the worst in us. Like the lady at Walmart yesterday complaining that they didn't have creamer. They had milk. What a a miracle. I went to Walmart and they had milk. But sometimes, where's your creamer? You know? Goodness, Jesus loves her. 
Might be the only one. Jesus loves her. Jesus loves her. Sometimes it brings out the best in us. Sometimes the bring, it brings out the worst. I've heard story after story of people helping each other to the best of their ability. Church members come together. We had a couple of guys just yesterday come over and bust up the ice at the entrance of the church so that we could gather. The things that we build will eventually fail us. But when we live with love of neighbor at the center of who we are, there isn't anything we can't overcome. When we finally realize that it isn't about me, but it is about us, we will finally begin to understand the mystery of Jesus' life and Jesus' suffering and Jesus' death and resurrection. The cross doesn't make sense until we realize what Jesus came to accomplish. And that he came to accomplish, he tells us in Luke chapter 4, he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to announce that this is the year of the Lord's favor. We live, or we should, live according to love of God and love of neighbor. Full stop. My, how our book of discipline would be much shorter if we could just get those two things. Loving God and loving one another. And we learn this by looking at Christ. Now, as I mentioned, ministry is unpredictable. And the, and the plan for today was to really dive in deep to our first Sunday, the substitutionary atonement theory, Jesus taking our place. But it's been a week, so the sermon is going to be a bit shorter than it normally is. <laughs> but over the next six weeks, we will, look, we will look at six different metaphors for understanding what is happening on the cross. And I say metaphors because all of them highlight something beautiful about God. All of them highlight the way in which we are saved, the way in which we find new life. But just like all metaphors, they do all break down at a certain point. In other words, just like the artwork that we will see over the next couple of weeks, there's more than one portrait that the cross offers to us. And it's not that one is more right than the other. This is how denominations are born. We can't agree on exactly what the cross means instead of looking at it as a tapestry of grace. Multiple portraits. God cannot be exhausted. And neither can our ideas about God. So we begin with substitutionary theory. It's the idea that Jesus takes our place. And this understanding of the cross is probably the best known and the most well-known metaphor for understanding the cross. The idea is this. The idea is God is fundamentally just. God is a God of justice. And because God's justice cannot be made null and void, God holds humanity accountable for sin. But humanity is incapable of paying the debt for that sin. So God sends Jesus, and because Jesus is fully human and fully divine without sin, Jesus takes our place. 
on the cross, the punishment that should be ours to maintain God's judgment, Jesus takes that upon himself. Jesus is the substitution for humanity. And it is a powerful way of understanding the cross. And this made sense to me this week. Uh, the Rawl family was in a tough spot. Uh, Monday, it was fun playing in the snow. Tuesday, it was less fun playing in the snow. Wednesday, we realized we're not going to be able to leave the house. Thursday, we realized, well, it looks like we have potatoes and grits left. <laughs> and we, you know, that, that's, that's how jambalaya was invented, right? You, you just take everything and you add rice to it and hope the kids eat it. So Friday, one of my friends who lives in Shreveport, he didn't have uh, water. Uh, he was in a rough spot, too. Uh, I said, hey, man, if you want to come over and use our shower, that's fantastic. Uh, but could you? And he has a truck, right? And you all know this, my, my running gag that I have a Camry, right? Camry's not going anywhere this week, y'all. <laughs> so he has a big old truck, and he came over, uh, and, and he brought me to the store. So I can get, at least get a few things that we could. We were making three-ingredient bread. It's disgusting. So he brought me to the store so we can get at least a couple of things uh, uh, for the house. When you're running out, and, and understand, this is all first world problems. Like, we, we were going to be okay. Like, we were not in a dire place. We had power. We had water. But family six, and you see the cupboard getting bare. You start to get into a desperate place. And here, his name's David. Here's David coming with a truck, bringing me to the store. Something I could not do, even if I wanted to. And we came back and we were, we were full. We were filled uh, with, with food. Substitutionary theory. Jesus doing something that we are incapable of doing. We find ourselves in a def desperate place. We cannot pay the tab, so to speak. And Jesus, fully human, fully divine, takes that upon the divine self and takes our place. It's like when you see a big old truck show up in your recently sh shoveled driveway to bring you what you need. It's a beautiful metaphor, but it's also not complete. All metaphors break down at a certain point. Sometimes when we look at substitutionary theory, it, unveil, it unveils kind of the underbelly that we might not intend it to reveal. For example, if God is fundamentally just, then it doesn't make much sense for an innocent person to take the penalty. That fundamentally isn't just. And if God knows that humanity is incapable of repaying the debt of sin, then why is humanity liable to pay it back? Practically speaking, sometimes substitutionary theory makes us think that Jesus took my place and I'm no longer morally obligated to do much of anything. I don't really have to help my neighbor. I don't really have to be a champion of justice. Jesus already paid the debt. Remember a couple of weeks ago I said Jesus isn't Superman. Jesus isn't a crutch. And that's not what the scriptures say. <laughs> for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you will follow in his footsteps. It's not that Jesus paid the debt you don't have to do anything. It's not that you have to do something. 
to earn your salvation, but you won't be able to recognize heaven, even if it's staring you in the face, if you haven't yet learned how to love. To love sacrificially. Our text goes on to say, when he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he trusted himself to the one who judges justly. Which means we are to follow the example, as Paul says in Romans 12, do not repay evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. Now, there's more to say, uh, and if I had all my books from my office, I probably would, would say more. But let me end with this. This is great Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've heard of it. Have some kind of working knowledge about it, right? It's a metaphor. Aslan, the lion, is a metaphor for Christ. And near the end of the story, um, one of the children, Edmund, uh, uh, is considered to be a traitor in Narnia. And the white witch says, because he is a traitor in Narnia, he must be executed. He can no longer live. I demand his blood. But Aslan, the lion, who committed no sin, takes his place and is sacrificed in his stead. And this is what Lewis writes in the voice of uh, Aslan. Though the witch, the white witch, though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she had looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time, she would have read there a different incarnation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself, death itself would start to work backward. This children's story from C.S. Lewis both ex expresses the beauty of substitution, of Jesus taking our place, and also its drawback. The beauty is that death itself is swallowed up with Aslan's sacrifice. The table is broken. Or as it says in scripture, the veil was torn from top to bottom. God and humanity as one through Jesus' sacrifice. The end of our story is no longer death, but life, which means there is nothing to fear. But if we're not careful, we will see God as the white witch who is angry, who is thirsty for blood, and who demands that someone pays to satiate her anger. It's a beautiful metaphor, but like all metaphors, it is incomplete. So we hold this as a portrait of the ways in which the cross reveals the beauty and the grace and the mercy of God. So let us give thanks for what Christ has done and let us live as an example of Jesus so that love of God and also love of neighbor, 
lies at the heart of everything we do and everything we are. Especially in a time of trial, may we be the best version of ourselves. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and most holy God, we give you thanks for sending your Son, Jesus, to take our place on the cross, to free us from sin, to lead us into forgiveness. For this we give you thanks, for this we give you our praise, for this we worship you here today. And, Father, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us so that we might live according to that example. Not so that we might earn salvation, it has already been gained through the work of Jesus. But so that we might recognize heaven here on earth so that we might convey your kingdom to our neighbors, so that we might be the best versions of your children, so that light will shine, so that we will overcome evil with good, so that all might know, Father, that you will stop at nothing to lead us, to offer sight to the blind, to lead us to preach good news to the poor, to help us release the captives according to whatever enslaves them, and so that we might live in divine favor. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.